Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is season two, episode one on strategy is the, is the name of the case. And with us today, uh, I'm, I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, your host. Uh, with me today, my colleagues from the Strategy and, Part, uh, and Policy Department, Dr. Kevin McCraney. Kevin, welcome. Dr. Tim Hoyt. Tim, welcome. And Dr. Andrew, aka Dex Wilson. Welcome, Dex. Thanks, John. All right, good deal. So we'll start with an easy one. We'll start with a softball question here. So grand strategy, what is it? How does it differ from regular strategy? Kevin, in your lecture, you talked about grand strategy. Any other, any other thoughts that you'd uh, like to uh, like deposit on it? Well, grand strategy is, is a slippery topic uh, because it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, you have to be careful about it. It has long-term quality. That seems to be something that unifies across, uh, across the spectrum. And it also deals with all instruments of power. Um, but sometimes things get mixed up between grand strategy and strategy, and sometimes grand strategy and policy as well, which I think can also be very, very dangerous when you start to convolute the terms like that. Although there is certainly a small degree of overlap that that can happen between them. Uh, but, but overall grand strategy, it's something that uh, needs to be clearly defined and make sure that when people are actually talking about grand strategy, the people who are talking about it actually have the same idea of what they actually mean by grand strategy. So people are not necessarily talking over one another. What do you think, uh, Tim? Uh, I know you've got some other thoughts on this. Well, the starting point I usually take, again, is I look at Clausewitz because he's really sort of the first modern Western strategic theorist. And he makes a, a nice separation between two different uh, states of international affairs. There's the preparation for war and there's war proper. And the book on war is about war proper. It's about strategy in war. And it focuses, therefore, because you're involved in fighting, it focuses primarily on military instruments and the strategic effects that they can have. But he also tells us that preparation for war is critical because if you prepare properly, um, wars can end up being a war by algebra or, or a war of armed observation where forces are mobilized and both sides decide that they're not going to fight because it's too lopsided or because it will be too costly. So that tends to be my starting point for grand strategy is the idea that a state is making strategic decisions about its military preparedness on the basis of its political aims in both war and peacetime. And in peacetime, there's a variety of other instruments that then can be utilized to the benefit of the state in pursuit of those aims that once you go to war, those instruments are still important, but they their impact may be changed because the condition of war is fundamentally different than the condition of peace. Um, 
On the other hand, I have to admit that's also tainted by having spent 35 years teaching Sunza as well. So I'll hand this over to Dex because I think Sunza has is dealing with that same conundrum. Um, and I know Clausewitz didn't read Sunza, but I did, so it probably affects my reading. Good point, Tim. Um, I think when it comes to uh, the Art of War, is tendly, tends to be viewed as a book with a larger perspective than, say, Clausewitz. Clausewitz is talking about on war, specific set of conditions, uh, clash of major interests, which is resolved by bloodshed. You know, it's got to have passions, primordial hatreds, uh, all those uh, constituent elements. It's got to be uh, the active clash of the militaries where you have this realm of chance and probability. So he defines war as, you know, uh, you know, a specific set of circumstances, whereas the Sunza is about the use of the military instrument and the purpose of the military instrument. Um, obviously, we don't neglect things like information, economics factors into it, but this is really about uh, the short-term objectives of having the best army possible and the best leadership possible to deal with both hot conflicts and act like the army of the hegemon king. So you have uh, a range of political objectives that states might want to achieve. Um, you know, part of them are about strategy in the near term. What are my political object objectives, say, in this in this war, but you have to do that with an eye towards your overall goals if you if you have the luxury of having them, uh, this idea of the long game. And, you know, the Sunza is definitely located in a period in which um, a, a protracted costly war uh, that I win, for example, you know, that's a win for me, but I might have been so fundamentally weakened by the blood, treasure, and spirit spilled in that conflict that I am now vulnerable to, um, you know, being pressured or even being conquered by a neighbor. This is why I call this kind of a death match, as it were. So I think the Sunza has an eye towards, okay, we have to husband our resources. We have the best possible. We have to use them on occasion, sometimes for deterrence, often for combat. Um, but this is the world we live in. And if we're not, not just going to survive, but if we are going to prevail in this, we have to you know, use the military in the near term with an eye much towards uh, what are our long-term goals. And when it comes to grand strategy, um, obviously it's a slippery topic, but I think it's important to ask ourselves, you know, is our gra grand strategy about achieving uh, specific objectives? You know, if you look at Xi Jinping's China Dream, um, you know, there are goalposts. Um, so if that's a grand strategy looking out over several decades, it's the goalpost that matters, the reintegration of Taiwan, for example, that's very specific. Whereas a lot of other grand strategies are, you know, the quest for favorable conditions or the maintenance of favorable right. conditions. Um, you know, in the United States, in terms of its grand strategy, you know, has a mix of specific things as they relate to certain states like Israel, for example. But, um, you know, for the most part, our, uh, if we in fact have a grand strategy, but our long-term theory of security is the maintenance of the, what's now being called the liberal international rules-based order. 
Um, so that's more of a uh, that's more of a maintenance uh, and aspiration than something specific. So we have to uh, distinguish between those two. Anyway, enough for me. Uh, go, go ahead, Tim. Did you have a response? Yeah, I mean, I think there may be a way of thinking about some of the divisions in the ideas of what grand strategy really is. Um, may fall into the distinctions between offensive and defensive realism that I think Dex just started to allude to. Um, if your objective is maintenance, uh, then a theory of security implies one thing, which is mostly being sort of a status quo manager of an existing system or participant in an existing system. Um, if you're an offensive realist, you may be thinking about fundamentally changing the international system and reordering it in some way. Um, Americans tend to think of ourselves as defensive realists because we inherited a unique position in 1945, but we have had periods uh, under Woodrow Wilson and also under George W. Bush where our approach was much more robust and looked much more like an offensive realism. Um, and the grand strategies that we chose as appropriate in those times look dramatically different than the broader continuum since the end of the Second World War. I mean, there are these real spikes in the graph, so to speak. Um, and that may be part of the struggle for understanding realism or understanding grand strategy. Liddell Hart is writing after the Second World War and after two massive tragedies in global conflicts for Britain. And he's very worried about securing and preserving a useful peace. That's much more of a sort of defensive realist point of view. Um, other theorists are much more aggressive. Um, other nations at various times are much more aggressive and may view it differently, which gives grand strategy a whole different connotation. Uh, go ahead, uh, Kevin, let's get a response from you. Uh, I think what Tim says is, is really important, and it goes back to also from what Dex said. One of the things I like to uh, say is I define strategy, not grand strategy, just, just plain strategy as how you go about trying to accomplish something versus policy on what are the types of things that you want to accomplish overall. But then you start to look, and it's something that Dex said here a few minutes ago about grand strategy. It's a theory of security, or I like, um, I like what Barry Posen says about how a state can best cause security for itself. They put the word cause in there, which gives it some sort of agency along the way. And this kind of goes back, to, I think, to what Tim is, is talking about, the states at various times see their grand strategies differently or how they evolve depending on how they want to cause security for themselves, whether it needs to be offensive, whether it needs to be defensive, whether it can be tracking, but it's a long-term quality that goes back to that preparation for war and, and other periods uh, to get the state to be relatively stronger, which is a lot of what I think Sun Tzu is trying to push out in the long-term, but uh, very fruitful discussion. Thank you for the great question, John. Uh, so I want to pull the thread a little bit on this one because it's it seems like it, we live in a in a very polarizing political time. I don't think I'm I'm shocking anyone by saying that. And uh, but but even if you took that back a decade or so or two decades, the different uh, you, you talked about. Um, I heard a gentleman say the long term theory of security and, and, and liberal international order. Well. 
certainly the way that that was interpreted by certain presidents, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush had one interpretation of it. Bill Clinton had another. George W. Bush had a different one. Obama and now, uh, you know, uh, tr then Trump and then Biden. So these different interpretations of what it actually the liberal international order should mean and our theory of security and whether we're offensive or defensive can one or at least from the perspective of the united states can we truly say that we have a grand strategy when we have such a a, a divisive and divided political uh, situation that that is that is constantly shifting in today's environment and let's let's start with this one with you tim um it's a good question um i mean i think Again, this partly gets back to some of these definitional issues about grand strategy, because many critics of foreign policy at any given time will default to the idea that, well, if we only had a good grand strategy the way we did in the Cold War, um, somehow everything would magically fall into place. Uh, and the reason that we had a consistent strat grand strategy in the Cold War was that we had an adversary uh, that was easily identifiable, that was a major challenge. Um, and without our engagement in the international community, the world would look very different and might look very dangerous. Um, at the same time, each administration used that sort of broad overlay to create its own strategies for how to deal with the problems that it felt were, would emerge during its time. And some were more successful than others. I'm not sure there's anything there's, there is anything like a perfect grand strategy. I'm not sure it's a magical solution. I think it's a like strategy itself. It's um, a process of adapting to a changing environment while still trying to maintain progress towards goals that are important for a nation or a coalition. Um, so, you know, in that respect, the liberal international order um, we have had different attachments to it at different times. Um, and I think the Trump administration, at least rhetorically, uh, threatened the connection between the US and the liberal international order more than other administrations did. And I think a lot of that was rhetorical. Some of it was also that he chose to use tools like tariffs um, for policy purposes in ways that previous administrations had not. And some of the results of those were good, some were bad. That's what happens when you use tools. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, there was a sense among our partners, or at least some of them at various times, that the US was withdrawing. And whether that's correct or not, that sense emerged out of the, of the political churn that was occurring during those four years. Uh, and I think the Biden administration has tried very, very hard, not only in its formal documents, but also in its negotiations to reverse that concern. But I do think at the same time, you know, the Trump administration um, was doing things that other administrations have in an effort to bolster our allies' participation and contribution to this liberal international order. It put pressure on them, sometimes in new ways, but it put pressure on them to make bigger contributions, um, to be, if necessary, somewhat more confrontational with those who would challenge it. So I think there is at some level a, a kind of a continuity still uh, in a period that is so ill-defined that the only thing we can call it is the post-Cold War world. Uh, but 
there has been the sense that we have some responsibility for sort of managing and trying to keep this global order that exists afloat because most seem to benefit from it more than they would benefit from something else. Um, and it benefits us. That said, as we see in the last couple of national security strategies that have national security strategies that have emerged, there's a sense that that order is changing and that it is under different kinds of threats now than it was 20 years ago. And I think that's a, a realistic response to trends in the international system. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Dex, why don't we move the question to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm one to see uh, actually a lot of continuity uh, in American foreign policy and in terms of our grand strategy. Um, you know, in fact, we've had a, a remarkably uh, stable um, set of relations with many, many, many of our neighbors um, in search of this sort of uh, set of uh, favorable conditions. And, um, you know, there have been aberrations and significant changes, uh, you know, we saw in the Middle East and the like. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of continuity in that because, you know, as a card carrying member of the deep state, uh, I'm maintaining, I'm keeping the ship. Uh, uh, the, the ship is huge. The ship of American foreign policy and grand strategy is huge and it's very difficult to turn. Um, so I agree with Tim that, you know, there were indicators during the Trump administration of uh, a fundamental shift away from this kind of uh, dynamic engagement with the outer world and, and also a uh, um, uh, an inclination to uh, absorb a lot of the costs of maintaining the, the international system uh, as it was. Uh, so there was noise about moving away from that, but it's very difficult to move away from it. Moreover, I don't yet see, you know, if we're gonna have a, a riven political system, you know, is there a clearly articulated foreign policy for, to, uh, to replace American grand strategy over the, that's been around for the past 70 years. Uh, when you start to see that articulated, you know, in a comprehensive manner, then, then I'd say that that continuity would be in, uh, uh, would be in uh, danger. Okay, interesting. Thank you, Dex. Um, Kevin, any thoughts? Yeah, um, first off, um, when we think of grand strategy, I don't think we should think a grand strategy is something like a roadmap with definite lanes and exit ramps and on ramps. To me, it's more of a guide or a series, a series of guideposts that kind of take you along a certain path, but there's a great deal of leeway on the side. It's not particularly written in very, very narrow terms. It's something that gives a great deal of flexibility over time. In part, that flexibility has to be there because strategy and things that pop up at uh, various points requires adaptation with interaction with other players, friends, uh, partners, neutrals, uh, potential challengers, and, and, and so forth. And that interaction that takes place at probably, we should say, probably the strategy level, not the grand strategy level, causes states to slowly, generally speaking slowly, but it can be cataclysmic as well to alter grand strategies to as the international situation changes. Uh, 
in most cases, though, I think what you see with most countries and particularly with the United States is that our grand strategy is not upset as in the apple cart is turned over very, very often. It probably happened sometime in the mid-1940s that you have a major shift in grand strategy. And you could probably say around 1990, at the end of the Cold War, there's a major shift in grand strategy. But as a general rule, the the the, the leadership in our country, they the grand strategy to me, to me I see is being modified and and uh, and so forth and in minor variations to to slight changes as a general rule as it interacts and adapts in the the regular environment but uh back over to you guys so oh go, go ahead dex yeah i think i think that relates as well to uh geopolitics and uh if uh you know uh interesting definition of geopolitics is it's this combination of history and geography uh, that shape uh, nations' outlooks, uh, in particular conceptions of, of security. Um, and our geo geopolitical position, geostrategic position uh, hasn't changed fundamentally. I mean, obviously attacks like September 11th, you know, on, on the American homeland, um, you know, are grievous and uh, shocking, but they, they don't erase the, the very favorable geography that the United States occupies. And you know, we, we have a, a general set of assumptions that what we are doing or what we think we have been doing for the past seven years has worked. So um, you know, there's, there, that those, those are the things you know, like sort of a shock to the system externally, a shock to the system internally, or some radical change in your geopolitical or geostrategic outlook. Um, that kind of shakes things up. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, as, as Kevin was saying, it's gotta, it's gotta be something big to shift uh, grand strategy. Um, but I think we have, you know, you know because of geopolitics, um, you, the US position physically that we, we have a, a lot more leeway when it comes to grand strategy. One, we can have one. Two, uh, uh, modifications usually usually work rather than fundamental transformations. Whereas other states can, you know, that that are more in a victim status in the international system have have deep deep geographic insecurities, probably change their uh, and and have riven political systems as well. Quite often, change their national policy objectives and their sort of grand strategic objectives, you know, quite frequently because of where they, where they, you know, um, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit as it were. So I think we have to kind of look inside the, the U.S. experience with grand strategy uh, and geopolitics and contrast that to how other states view the current international order. We view it as beneficial. Um, we view it as something of our making. Uh, we think that's good. Um, you know, we're used to being, you know, at the top. This is not something other states have really experienced. So their experience, but with their history and their geopolitics are fundamentally different than our own. So we have to be aware of where our set of long-term objectives for a favorable environment, are those equally favorable 
to the main actors in the international system? We assume, yeah, right? Trade is good, sea lines are good. Um, but does China, for example, you know, which has benefited immensely from that, you know, actually share those views and have has their conception of security morphed from you know, national security to collective security? And I'd say the answer is no uh, there. So ge geography matters, uh, history matters as well in terms of your sense of national experience. Is it, is it triumphant or traumatic? This, you bring up the, the, the point about geopolitics, Dex, and it's um, highly resonant in what we talk about in the, in the concept of a maritime power versus continental powers. And um, from our standpoint, being outside the Rimlands, as, a, as a, you know, it's put in the book, Kaplan's book, we have a, and we have, as you, as you alluded to, you know, neighbors that are friendly to us and uh and not uh, marching invasion armies across our across our border um is that you know does that allow us a worldview that that is that can afford to be liberal and free market and and whatnot and are we always going to be coming at the problem from a we really can't put ourselves in the shoes of what it's like to be in say russia germany china uh whatever whatever uh you know powers in Europe or Asia that have borders that have been invaded. Um, just throw that one open for, for thoughts. And, and I, I'd also say too that, you know, the perspective of even our friends is that the United States is not actually a status quo power. Um, you know, we have this kind of Wilsonian urge um, and this underlying ideological set of ideological assumptions um, that seem to propel us towards um, expanding democracy. That our, our explicit uh, objectives in the national security strategy and all, a lot of these documents is, you know, a free, open, liberal world. Um, and, you know, we're all about spreading democracy. But some of our neighbors, the Chinese and the Russians in particular, um, you know, uh, see a connection between uh, that subtext of American grand strategy and the political developments along their frontiers, right? Uh, when it comes to like the color revolutions, that the set of assumptions that this is the United States kind of uh, acting on or weaponizing um, the spreading of democracy by actively involving ourselves. I'm not saying this is what we're doing, but this is the perception in Moscow and Beijing that the United States is behind these uh, political shifts, not for spreading democracy, but for putting in place regimes that are more favorable to the United States, rather than you know the 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 one of the entrenched uh, powers in the region. Yeah. So I think that element of our transform the transformative nature of our foreign policy uh, is something that we have to be. On, on guard for in terms of the reactions it sets off, even if those reactions are based on flawed assumptions. Okay. Uh, Tim, any thoughts on the, the geopolitics perspective? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Dex has sort of adequately laid out the immense and abundant security that we possess in the international system as a result of our unique geography. Um, you know, we, we live in a relative absence of serious threat, which is extraordinarily unusual. Um, 
I think that also tailors a lot of the debates that you've seen about grand strategy, um, at least from the academic side that then seep into the policy world. You know, the, the main sort of contours of grand strategy that were laid out in the post-Cold War world were had to do with primacy, with selective engagement, with offshore balancing, or with isolationism. Um, you know, those were kind of the four different buckets in which academics kind of gravitated towards uh, in terms of thinking about what American grand strategy, strategy should be. And those have to do with the fact that we have a great deal of power that we can exercise in a lot of different ways, some of which is going to get us entangled in the world and may raise risks and costs, and some of which is going to um, disentangle us with the world, which may lower some near-term risks and costs, but raise greater problems for stability in the in the international system, which if we value, we probably want to continue to preserve as a major object. And that's, I think, you know, our geography has shaped our debate in the same kinds of ways that Britain's geography shaped its debate about making a continental commitment or not in the early 20th century. You know, if you have relative security, how much do you want to tie yourself up in alliances and commitments and overseas bases, of which we have quite a few? Uh, so I think you know, geopolitics obviously plays a role, and it also determines our grand strategy as threats emerge. Um, as we see states becoming more powerful, certainly, for instance, um, the way that we are thinking about NATO today is probably quite different than the way that we were thinking about NATO three years ago. Um, because Russia mobilized a huge ground force and invaded a neighboring country that is neighbors with many of our NATO allies. Um, that then tilts our debate among those sort of four buckets um, and suggests that isolationism may not be prudent at this time and probably pushes us more towards other options which then affects how we spend money on defense, how we think about using positioning and using our military force, both as a deterrent and as an active force. Um, I think geography does have some important impact on the way in which we interact with the world. I think it does with Russia and China as well. Um, you know, this is where I think uh, Mackinder talked about the heartland and the rimland, <clears throat> and he seems to imply that the danger is the heartland. Spickman talked about the heartland and the rimland in very different ways. And for him, the threat actually wasn't Russia. The threat was some country that was on the rimland that could then conquer and secure the majority of the Eurasian continent. That it's the rimland states that are actually more difficult because they have access to the maritime world. They have access to international trade. They can attack a maritime power more effectively. And for that, I think Spickman is useful in thinking in terms of the dilemmas of China. Mm. Um, on the one hand, it is a near continent sized power in its own right. It has a billion and a half people. It has benefited enormously from access to the sea, but that access to the sea also makes it feel acutely vulnerable. It's in a unique position now because while it has borders with a dozen countries, most of those countries can't really threaten it by land. Mm. So this is in some ways a period of opportunity and risk simultaneously. And that's probably having some effect on the on internal debates in China about how best to adapt to this. Um, you know, involvement in the international system is good for China, but they may need something more. Mm. And that's where understanding your enemy matters a lot. And I'm not sure geopolitics gives us that much insight 
into the G regime that we would need. It gives us a broad idea, but not, um, it's, it, we should be careful about it being too deterministic. Mm. So just, just one layer we need, we need those other, other layers or other lenses, right? Uh, Kevin, I want to go to you for a response to this one. Yep. I think you're you on mute, Kevin. Oh, I don't have a great deal to say after, after what I've heard Dex and Tim say. One thing I do want to highlight is the interactive effect. Uh, states, whether it's China, Russia, Germany, United States, they all have a geopolitical position. They all have geography. They all have interest on the map. They all have a location on the map. And that provides, that influences much of what they do. It doesn't explain the personalities of leaders. It doesn't explain it all. But as 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 our host has said, it is that one of those layers. And the thing about that layer is it's something that uh, doesn't change or is very, very difficult to change in the best of circumstances and creates uh, and creates uh, creates issues. A big issue that that comes out of this is that um, I don't think when you're looking at grand strategy, if you just look at the grand strategy of one country, you really are missing a great deal, particularly the geopolitics of that country, because that geopolitics and that grand strategy has to interact with other countries out there and how that interaction interplays between the great powers and middle powers and even weaker powers out there. Um, really creates this dynamicism that you see grand strategies evolve uh, slightly. You see strategies change. Uh, you look at Germany today, uh, the invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia has profoundly shaken uh, their strategic calculations and upset uh, the grand strategic bulwark, which they have been fostering at least since 1990 or thereabouts. And it's going to have to lead them into new directions, in part because geography doesn't change in this point. They are still located in a certain position on the map, and they can't escape that position along the way. So I think if you understand how these things interact uh between states, how they influence single states, and how all this stuff works together, I think you can start to get a more complete picture of international relations and the dynamics and things that push and pull states. Mm. Oh, interesting points. Um, so I wanted to get us into the theorists a little bit here and kind of pull on a thread um, that, uh, uh, Tim, you mentioned. So you mentioned Basil Liddell Hart. And uh, the quote that always uh, we use a lot in the, in the course where he, where he says, um, you know, establishing the better state of peace, even if from your own, uh, even if only from your own point of view. But juxtaposing this with Clausewitz, where he says that the results of war are hardly ever final, does establishing a peace from your own point of view potentially directly lead to the next war if you've if you've if the peace is only better from your own point of view then doesn't that completely dis disenfranchise your adversary and and make him want to simply resume hostilities whenever it's uh, uh beneficial to him uh tim let's let's start with you on this one sure uh, and yeah i think that's what clausewitz is warning us about um that war is um imperfect tool for resolving political disputes because at the end unless you have somehow completely compelled your adversary 
to give up whatever their view on the political dispute is, you will have a peace, but they still will have that desire for whatever that political aim is. And at some point in the future, they're going to contest with you about it, perhaps non-violently, right, through other tools, but perhaps at some point in the future, violently. Um, and we see, you know, this cycle, it's, it's not just in um, completely irredentist conflicts, but there are some of those, you know, multiple wars over Kashmir, multiple wars in Israel and Palestine, um, multiple wars over Alsace-Lorraine, uh, you know, that there are pieces of territory that may be both strategic and of en enormous emotional value to both sides. Um, the, the flip side of Liddell Hart, on the one hand, he's sort of hinting towards making a generous peace. On the other hand, making a generous peace to someone who perhaps started a war also may make you uniquely vulnerable at some point in the future, should they decide that in fact, the result is not final and they want to come back and look at it again. And this is a problem that we're going to see in Ukraine. Um, we see reasonable people saying, gosh, we should try and negotiate an end to the war in Ukraine because a lot of people are dying. There's a huge amount of hardship. It's not only contained to the region, but now it's global because of food supplies and energy prices. We really should end this thing. Um, at the same time, from Ukraine's perspective, a generous peace to Russia looks like what they did in 2014. And it looks like what they did in the 1990s when they gave up their nuclear weapons in return for Russian guarantees. They have no certainty that this peace will last. Mm. Um, and that's going to create a fundamental tension in Ukrainian leadership about when and what to negotiate for. Mm. Um, and it will create tensions among the coalition as well, because the rest of the states that aren't Ukraine um, may have wide variation of interest in mm. the war continuing. And that may create pressure on Ukraine at some point in the future. Although President Biden's been very clear at this point, he is, you know, he has denied reports that we are pressuring Ukraine for, for a truce. Mm. Um, it will lead to trouble in the future, almost certainly. And that is not unusual. That is the condition in virtually every war. There is an enormous tension between accepting an unex a peace that you don't really like or trying to do a lot more damage to your enemy in hopes that either you can force them to accept a better peace for you or at a minimum, and this may be the case in Ukraine, that you can do enough damage to Russia that they won't be able to come back and attack you for a decade mm. or more because you will have shattered their military forces. Mm. Um, we don't talk a lot about this, but that was the strategic perspective of Israel uh, for much of the first sort of 45 years of its existence, which was it had to win every war and it had to win every war decisively, knowing that the peace that emerged at the end of the war would not be a certain one and they would have to fight again. But the hope was that if they did this often enough, their neighbors would gradually realize the cost is outweighing the benefits and they mm. would begin to treat Israel as a normal state. One might make the argument that 75 years later, we're starting to see that happening in the Middle East. Mm. But it's the same problem that Ukraine faces. If they make a ceasefire with Russia, the next war starts whenever Russia wants to start it. Yeah. And unless you can shatter their forces and force them to rebuild, you're losing a lot of leverage if you make a, a generous peace. Mm.
No, that's, that's interesting. A lot of a lot of great threads we could pull on there, but I want to move the move the question around before we do that. Uh, Dex, any any thoughts on uh, on this one? Well, on on creating a better state of peace, um, you know, as as much planning as you you, you do in advance for what do you want to achieve by the war, uh, where do you want to see the um, the various participants in the conflict materially, politically at the at the end of it, um, it really ends up being uh, a scramble towards the very end of the conflict because a lot of things change in the course of a conflict, right? Uh, the, the, the war, you know, give you an extreme example, World War I. Uh, the world was a fundamentally different place in 1918 than it had been in 1914. Uh, several of the major powers on the global stage had, you know, gone up in smoke as it were. Um, so the peace there had to both satisfy the, uh, the grievances of you know democratic powers, it had to assuage the you know the security fears of of, of other states. Um, you know who's you know even if you're from your own perspective, um, you know so it had to resolve the the causes of the war, but also had to deal with the results of the war. And when you approach these questions of you know moving towards peace and creating a that better state of peace. Um, it's not just just how far to go militarily and what to demand politically. It's, you know, what sort of conditions do you want to see in your defeated adversary? Um, what, how are you going to, you know, handle the dispensation or repopulation of, of um, the, the regions ravaged by war, right? Are you going to be creating new states there? Are you going to... Uh, return that territory to a, to another claimant. Uh, so where the war is fought, what kind of position do you want to see your allies in? Um, you got a, you got regional issues. You know, do you recreate the regional balance of power? Um, you know, are your friends in the region happy? Are your foes and you know su sufficiently uh, cowed or at least denied opportunities to overturn things? Uh, or have you opened the door for spoilers? to start to rapidly to undermine whatever better state of peace uh, you've achieved. Then you have to think about the global balance of power. I mean, all wars now are fought within the, um, you know, within a global aperture, an internationalist aperture, um, but some have more impact on the global system than others. I mean, you, Ukraine for the scale of the war, it's remarkable the amount of impact that that has had. Um, and then at the same time, all these things you have to be considering as you think about signing those papers, you know, what does your home front feel? You know, what do they want? Um, you know, do they want glory? Do they want, are they want to say, okay, stop the war. Let's get back to, you know, um, you know, building a, building a, a, a great society or something like that. Um, so how do, how do you manage your own home front in the war, war termination process? Because quite often um, in our system, the debates about how past wars have ended uh, has, have, have driven future wars as well um, and future war termination uh, approaches. So I think, I think there, there are so many layers to it that it's not surprising that this better state of peace is usually deeply flawed mm -hmm. from from many, many perspectives. 
That's a uh, full disclosure. That's the whole reason why I chose the maps of Napoleonic France for my background here, because yeah. that was a better state of peace from Napoleon's point of view, but it obviously didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't last too long. Kevin, any, any thoughts on this one? I think Dex and Tim have really highlighted effectively how difficult ending a war is and the sheer myriad of factors, many of which are out of a leader's control, have to be balanced to get a lasting state of peace. Uh, uh, all those are important. I'd like to go back to that tension of your original question for a second as, as I tie this together. I think one of the key points in Little Heart's statement, if only from your own point of view, what I think he's saying is a better state of peace if only from your own point of view, that's the worst case scenario. If you can't get a better state of peace where everybody else buys into it, if you can at least at the end get a better state of peace from your own point of view, it will probably mean if that's as good as you can do, you're going to Clausewitz's phrase at that point. In war, the result is never final. You might have been able to buy yourself a decade or, or thereabouts. But if you can get a better state of peace, if only from your own point of view, you can at least build your own side stronger so you can emerge potentially relatively stronger for the next war that comes down the line. Granted, if that's as good as you can doing, it does leave you feeling a bit empty that you have paid tremendous sacrifice. You play, paid the blood, the treasure tax, the time, the lost opportunities, and realizing that you're just setting yourself up better for the next war but sometimes in the international environment, that's all you can frankly do. Um, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's a tough game to play. And, uh, and oftentimes fighting the war is much easier than trying to terminate it and bring oneself out of it in a way that prevents a future conflict. Okay. Interesting. I, I, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense if, uh, if you look at it from a very real politic point of view, right? War is coming again. It's a matter of time, but at least we can buy ourselves a couple of years and, <laughs> and prepare. Um, so let me play devil's advocate here a little bit. So if, I, if I'm, you know, let's say uh, the, the new officer in the course and I'm like, hey, you know, this theory stuff, it sounds like a bunch of bunk to me. I've uh, gotten to my rank and position not by, uh, you know, reading a lot of theory, I've gotten to it by performance and, and doing my job well. And, you know, now you guys are giving me these two different theorists who have these, in some, in some sense, diametrically opposed views on how you win. So if, I, if this stuff is going to be any, in any way useful to me, well, which one's more useful? Because I've got, you know, Clausewitz who talks about center of gravity, and he's saying, all right, the hub of all power movement, where the enemy's cohesion comes from, and it's his capital if it's a center of cohesion, or it's army if it's, it's uh, you know, led by somebody like Frederick the Great, or if it's a popularizing, popular uprising, it's the personality of public opinion. Whereas Sons is saying, don't attack cities, you know, you don't, you can win without fighting. Uh, there's, there's a lot of differences here. So which one is, is more useful to me? And if I'm if I'm just, I, I just want to take what I can get out of this and, and move along and not have to read 400 pages of Clausewitz. No, I didn't mean that. I, of course you have to read 400 pages of Clausewitz. <laughs> so why don't, uh, Kevin, why don't, we, why don't we start with you on this one? Thank you, uh, thank you, John. Uh, <laughs> um, I trust that you will be reading your 400 pages of Clausewitz. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the, um, 
the thing is about theory about the theorist uh their biggest strength is they make you think they make you sit down in a place where nobody is shooting at you where lives are not on the line directly where decisions that are being made are not going to put the nation at risk. And it forces people to think. And having diametrically opposed views is a wonderful thing because it forces you to think, why are these people coming up with these diametrically opposed views? What is the perspective that they are coming on where are some of these tools more valuable in what situations versus others? Uh, we don't give you one theorist in this course. Um, that would make our jobs, your job, everybody else's job a lot easier, but you would be intellectually dishonest in, in this point and inadequate. To me, these theorists give you these tools really for this reasoning, logic, analysis, to build you into stronger thinkers by giving you an opportunity of not giving you the answers, but giving you the frameworks, the questions, the thoughts and ideas, and, and, and working with you to try and figure out how to apply them in what are very, very difficult circumstances. But again, these are not the circumstances you're fortunate to get an opportunity to do this in a setting where you have time to read, you have time to talk, time to think through it. Because when we send you out into the real world after your year at the War College, things start to get a lot more real potentially very, very quickly. And, uh, and this is just an opportunity to make you more agile thinkers as, as you move on. That would be my take on it. But what does uh, Dex and Tim think about that? Uh, Tim, why don't we start with you? Um, okay. Uh, look, I think, uh, first off, I, I agree with Kevin. I mean, this is the benefit of coming to a staff college or a war college, is that you get a year to study, to think, to be creative and to reflect, um, and to talk to, to people um, with a wide range of experience and knowledge um, from lots of, different, lots of different viewpoints. I think if you look at the theorists, what both of them are trying to say is, War, to use Sunza, is a matter of vital importance to the state. Um, you better be very careful about how you use that tool. And at a, as a starting point, I would simply say that to American officers today. Look, we effectively lost two wars that we spent a great deal of treasure and a significant amount of blood in. Um, and part of the reason we did it was because we didn't think through a lot of the things that the theorists say are very important understanding a great deal about the character of the people in states that we invaded, about the character of government and the military capabilities of those states, um, not looking enough at the consequences of our actions and at the impact of our actions on the will of people inside those states, which then led them to resist and to resist effectively and at great cost. I mean, the theorists lay that out for us and our experience tells us we didn't do very well at it, even though a lot of the people who were doing the planning had come to our war and staff colleges. If that's not enough, I'd point to Vladimir Putin and say, you know, here's an autocrat. His entire state is premised on great power status as the result of his military capability and military power. Um, 
And he has ambitious objectives. He wants to reunite a greater Russian empire. And he decided that he was going to go to war with Ukraine. And it has really backfired just incredibly badly for him. Um, did he do any of the things that these theorists warned us were both necessary and, um, you know, in fact, critical? He may have tried, but he deceived himself. And in doing that, he created a strategy that his forces could not possibly accomplish and put those forces and his state at, and in fact, his regime and his personal health at enormous risk. Um, the examples of the 21st century are that war is a really bloody, expensive, complicated business. And getting more insight into what you need to think about at sort of the upper levels before you make decisions for war is critical to officers who are moving towards much higher levels of command, even if they are only then going to be using that knowledge to advise their civilian counterparts and leaders on the limits of military force in a given in a given place. Um, I think it's just critical. And what both of them give us is tools for assessment before the war which is really fundamental to improving your chances of success. Okay, fair enough. I actually want to pull that thread about Vladimir Putin, but I, but I'll first give Dex the chance to respond to this uh, this question. Uh, in terms of the, the the diametrical opposition, I mean, one way to look at it is um, you know context. I'm all about historical context. Um, you know, when is Clausewitz writing? You know, when is when is the sons of being written? Um, who are they responding to? I mean, you know, in the case of Clausewitz, he's responding to uh, a generation of military thinkers uh, who, one, some of them believe that war is much more of a science, uh, that there are rules, um, uh, was it pos positive doctrine uh, in war? Um, moreover, that one can win without fighting. You can outthink and outmaneuver your adversary. And many wars in that in that period before Clausewitz are, um, you know, solved by that. So in some ways, Clausewitz is confronting a a, a whole bunch of Sunzians, um, and he's saying, "Well, no, these aren't gonna; those approaches are not gonna work when you're dealing with a state like Napoleonic France." You know, whereas in you have military genius, you have, uh, you know, the nationalization of war, you have passion, you have all these things uh, playing into it. Um, so war is a, is, a, is a violent, violent business, and you have to prepare for that. Um, whereas I think Sunza is growing up in an environment where there are too many Clausewitzians, as it were. Uh, and this is the same experience that Basil Littlehart has, which is, well, we tried that. Um, you know, the, this perception, inaccurate, but this perception that the last two wars in Europe, these incredibly destructive wars, uh, were just proof positive that, you know, a Clausewitzian approach to war um, is both strategically and morally bankrupt. So, um, you know, too many Sunzians running around versus too many Clausewitzians running around in sort of, you know, uh, generalized terms. So, uh, you know, I think that's important to consider. And it's, it really depends on the nature of the conflict. I mean, there are there are some that are uh, absolutely uh, require this sort of blunt force approach. Uh, some conflicts, perhaps not even you know armed conflicts, but preventing armed conflicts, 
can often be achieved by you know deft maneuvering um, and isolating the adversary, convincing them that they, yeah, they don't want to yeah. fight. So I think um, you know that's an important consideration when seeing the the dichotomy between these two, the dichotomies between these two thinkers, and also the the value therein because Clausewitz says war is more than a true chameleon, and there might mm. be conflicts where you have to pick off. You know, focus on the Sunzian menu, focus on the Clausewitzian menu, or combine them, uh, pick and choose, or just jettison them and uh, pick up pick up Germany in exchange instead. So, um, interior so lines of communication. Yeah, well, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's 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 good to disagree. We see a lot of disagreement in politics, but you know, we see a lot of disagreement on the internet. But that's opinion. Hmm. Um, you know, Clausewitz and Sunza are giving us uh, analysis. Mm. You know, why are they concluding these things? And they thought yeah. through the issues. So, I yeah. think they also give us the tools and the and the strategic literacy uh, to develop our skills um, mm. of that kind of logical thinking about the use of the military. Now, that's an excellent point. It forces critical analysis when you have these disagreement. Uh, disagreeing yeah. theorists to, to look at it. Um, thank you, Dex. So for our last question today, I want to manage the clock here, but I definitely want to pull this thread about Vladimir Putin. Um, and as a stage setter, Tim, uh, you know, the thing that jumps to my mind is we've had other examples of people that even though they understood the theory, didn't use it very well. Like uh, we're going to have a case coming up uh, in a few weeks. Uh, the Kaiser has read Alfred Thayer Mahan front to back, has all sea captains read it. It still doesn't help him in, in the execution of the First World War or at the Jutland, right? And, you know, there were very smart people in the room when George W. Bush decided to launch invasions of, of other countries that were saying, hey, that's not a good idea, boss. But he did it anyway. And it, it strikes me as you know, Vladimir Putin sitting there and let's just say, just, just assume that he's read Clausewitz front to back. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't, doesn't matter. The point is, is that even if he's read Clausewitz, does his rational calculus really change vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? Not just because of the conditions in, 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 in you know, uh, in geopolitics and his national aims, but because of this, the well, let's take it back to the Trinity, this interplay of passion, reason, chance. Leaders can be victims of passion as well. Absolutely. Right? So um, actually, Tim, let's let's start with you on this on this question. And we'll also make it a final thoughts question, too, sure. because uh, in interest of time. Um, well, if we want to look at the Trinity, um, let's look at how Putin did in terms of evaluating. And we'll use the triangle just because it's a little bit cleaner. Um, but you know, how did he anticipate um, the reactions of the Ukrainian government? He thought it would collapse. He thought it would flee. And he was wrong. Um, now, to be fair, he wasn't the only one who thought that. I think a lot of uh, Western governments thought that as well. Uh, and in fact, that was one of the reasons we offered President Zelensky the opportunity to flee Kiev. And then he came back with that wonderful line of, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Um, Afghanistan had just happened, and that's yeah. exactly the model that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think he, he didn't understand the Ukrainian government. He didn't understand the Ukrainian people. I mean, I think everybody believed that if he was successful, there would be a serious and protracted insurgency inside Ukraine. That, um, you know, the Maidan revolution really did touch into a sense of Ukrainian nationalism 
that Putin himself was just simply trying to deny, to deny that Ukraine ever existed, that there was no Ukrainian nation or language or history or tradition, that they were just Russian. It would have been a bloodbath, even if his conventional forces had been successful. Then the third thing that he didn't understand was the Ukrainian military. Um, he didn't understand how hard they would fight, how effectively they would fight. He had not been paying attention to how fighting had been going in the Donbass for the last eight years, because the Ukrainians had been getting better and better and better and losing fewer and fewer men. Um, so in terms of using the, the triangle as a tool for assessment, uh, he was wrong. And the reason he was wrong I would argue, at least in part, was because he was not self-aware. He did not understand the character of his own government. When you're an authoritarian and you've been in power for 20 years, people tend not to tell you the things that they think you don't want to hear. And I think that profoundly affected the Russian assessment process. Um, they thought their military really was almost a NATO caliber combined arms force, and it's not. Um, they thought their intelligence assessments of Ukraine were really, really good because the KGB had responsibility for it. And as near as we can tell, they weren't very good. Uh, so, you know, in terms of that, those passages on page 585 and 586, where Clausewitz says, you know, to begin your assessment, here are the things you need to look at. Putin tried to check those boxes, perhaps, but he didn't do a good job at any of them. And that meant that he was not doing critical analysis, uh, either of his adversary or of himself. So he was in trouble. Fair enough. Dex, go ahead. Uh, yeah, another, you know, the, the the closing line of that section in 585, 586 that Tim just mentioned is, you know, the, the, uh, the sympathies of other states. Um, you know, Putin clearly got a lot of stuff wrong, sort of internal to Russia and internal to uh, Ukraine. Um, and, but in some circumstances, his war plan could work uh, against a different regime, uh, I think in a different place, um, because if you're gonna win a quick decisive victory, uh, impose your terms rapidly, you, you have to isolate the theater, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and it's very hard physically to isolate Ukraine. Um, and, in this case, it proved to be absolutely impossible to isolate Ukraine diplomatically uh, or to isolate this conflict from external actors uh, who are either spoilers or uh, active participants, however you want to look at it. You know, if you can't isolate the theater and, um, you know, that gives provides time and materiel to your adversary, plus, you know, you open the door for this, um, you know, uh, intervention by outside powers, which because of the nature of the conflict, the nature of the, the, the technologies that the Ukrainians need uh, is just happens to be kind of tailor-made for outside involvement short of war. Um, so that that was a, a consideration that you know uh, Putin simply assumed that you know the West would you know talk tough, but then at the end of the day, really do nothing, and that you didn't care about Ukraine, and that you know Ukraine could be isolated, and you know this could be all solved uh, with diktats from Moscow. But you know the sympathies of other states truly, truly matter because it's the context in which the war is taking place, both mm -hmm. politically and physically. 
in this case with the position of Ukraine. Hmm. Good stuff. Kevin. Well, I think we can start with Sun Tzu and his statement on you know, war's vital importance to the state in, in this point. And frankly, everything that we've said is Putin's got that doesn't understand how to win that war that is of vital importance. And I think that's just the cautionary tale for any of us who study strategy and look at these sorts of issues that nobody is immune from these strategic ideas. The states, the leaders who get these theories or understand these theories and figure out how to apply them and make the strongest assessments and look at things as they are, not as we wish for them to be. Uh, those leaders tend to do the best and their military, should I say, tend to do the best in conflict. It's not that they always win, but getting those things wrong, missing the points, missing the assessments, not correctly identifying these points that these theorists, be it a Sun Tzu, a Clausewitz, or any of the others are pointing out, generally points your way toward ruin. And Frankly, to me, it is a great advertisement for the study of strategy, the types of things that we do in the strategy and policy department, that these sorts of things that are really, in many cases, relatively easy, but they're at least to understand in the first place, but they're so hard to apply. They're so hard to digest. Oftentimes, they're so hard to get right because you have to understand the sympathies of other states you have to understand your opponent you have to understand yourself and when it is an authoritarian state that becomes even more difficult strangely enough um in this one but no i think i think overall the theories that are are put forward and the things that we've heard here today are things that should give us pause and make us study this stuff a lot more diligently and a lot more carefully Outstanding. All right. Great discussion, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. And thanks for everybody for listening. We'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank, Thank you, John. Thanks a lot.